This episode of New Politics was recorded on September 24, 2020, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, vested interests continuing their call to open up Australia, the recycling of political good news stories, we look at a wide range of problems in the National Party, and it's not a week in politics unless we find some more corruption. This time it's a land sale in Western Sydney. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. And I'm David Lewis. I just sold land to the Liberal Party for 10 times its worth. There seems to be a large schism between the vested interests on one hand calling for the end of border closures, including corporate interests and the federal government. And on the other hand, the general public, which according to all recent polls, is still highly supportive of state governments keeping their borders closed. In Western Australia, an incredible 91% of all people polled are supportive of a hard border closure in that state. And in the other states, support is hovering between 60 and 70%. There are many in the mainstream media pushing for borders to be opened up as soon as possible. That's News Corporation, Seven West, Nine Media, and increasingly the ABC. And they're pushing a corporate agenda the public doesn't seem to support. And there are good reasons for this lack of public support. There are 4,000 new coronavirus cases every day in the UK, 10,000 each and every day in France, and the US has reached a record of 42,000 cases. These countries do have much larger populations than Australia, but in comparison, we've only had 16 new cases in the past 24 hours. But if we had the same infection rate as the US, our numbers would be 3,500 new cases every single day. And I think the Australian public has had a good look at what's happening in other countries, and they don't want the same thing happening over here. So if that's the case, why does the mainstream media and the federal government keep pushing this agenda to open up when it's quite obvious the public doesn't support this? And are the current case numbers low enough to open up, or should Australia try and move towards complete eradication of coronavirus? It goes down, I think, to how much do you value life and how much do you value money? I really think that a lot of the arguments for opening up The underlying thing is we will lose lives that don't really matter. You can get total eradication. Gladys Berejiklian claimed that you couldn't. New Zealand has eradicated it. Queensland eradicated it. South Australia has eradicated it. The only state that hasn't really eradicated, or the only two states that haven't really eradicated it, are Victoria, and they are on track. I think by the end of next week or the week after, within the next 21 days of when we're talking, if the model continues as it's going, Victoria will have no cases. And then if they can hold that for 21 days, it's eradicated. New South Wales bubbles along with questionable figures. I don't trust them only because the virus seems to be behaving differently in New South Wales to everywhere else in the world. So I think that we probably need to look at testing a bit differently or actually look at the methodologies used as to how how they count figures and things. We've had a bit of criticism saying that we're not epidemiologists. We're not. But we do work in data analysis and statistics And viruses follow those rules, that you can have a predictable model, which is how we know numbers can move up and move down. And genuine predictions have been fairly accurate. 
They're talking a doubling every seven days in the United States if things don't happen. And that's been happening. It's awful. We have too many vested interests with ear to the media, which are often owned by those same vested interests. I will be fair, though. I think that if you were to take the hard border closure survey in Western Australia outside of the pandemic, it would be 89%. You don't really have to be an epidemiologist to realise that the coronavirus can be a deadly disease if you do capture it. But I'm more interested in how this dichotomy within the the media and also within the public has been developing as well. Just on one hand, that there's popular support for border closures, whereas the media has got a different agenda going on. Consistently, I noticed that within the ABC, the 7.30 report, every single night, without offering any counter perspectives, there was a story about border closures and how someone was being affected by it in Perth or in Hobart or someone in Melbourne or Queensland. They were always managing to find a sad sack story about someone with a devastating story affected by the border closures. Now, that's not to underestimate those concerns, but it just seemed like there were no counter-perspectives being offered here. The, the Herald Sun in Melbourne, that's a news corporation newspaper, constantly running attacks on Daniel Andrews, constantly pushing forward this idea that borders need to be open as soon as possible. Borders do need to be opened up as soon as possible, but not if there's a public health risk. As soon as possible is as soon as the disease is preferably eradicated or at least so far under control that there's no risk of sudden flare-ups. I think part of it is a reaction to the notions that we used to take for granted. A lot of the assumptions and presuppositions and givens, if you like, of life have gone. We don't need overpaid CEOs running things anymore. In fact, we've found that they're totally useless. We don't need banking and resources to be such an important part of the economy. There are other things that are more important. We should be valuing retail people, health professionals, health professional support staff, cleaners, public transport drivers who you know put themselves at risk every day for people who don't have cars. Uh, or don't have alternate means of transport and who have to get on the bus. These are the people who have shown to have value, not the usual overpaid upper class, if you like, who we can see produce nothing and achieve nothing, but are there. And I'm sounding really... I'll be building a barricade if anyone wants to join me. (laughs) Well, speaking of barricades, there was that motley collection of protesters in Melbourne last week, anti-lockdown, anti-coronavirus. They believe in the theory that... This whole coronavirus being set up to protect a pedophile ring and there's missing children that are being held underground in Melbourne against their will. Now, all of this has been fanned by QAnon and right-wing Christian groups, but it's interesting that Scott Morrison, no one from the federal government, has implored these protesters not to protest in the same way that Scott Morrison admonished the Black Lives Matter protesters several months ago. There's a whole range of factors going on in Melbourne. There's a whole lot of pressure to open up as as soon as possible. And like I said, well, of course the border should be open up as soon as possible, but only when there's a lesser public health risk. And I believe that that public health risk is still there. They're not criticising the anti-lockdown protesters because they, in some sense, agree. Now, they may not quite agree, but it's a bit like the John Howard supporting One Nation people very quietly. This is part of their vote. Why you'd want nutty conspiracy people as part of your vote is a bit beyond me. 
except I think they're after all the votes they can get. And a lot of the these people do live in swinging seats, and that's the coalition strategy, to win just enough swinging seats to get through. Maybe there's that. Well, politics never actually goes to sleep, and there's always room for political opportunities. And, of course, there's an election coming up in Queensland next month. seems that concurrent with the reduction in case numbers across Australia and possibly the threat of coronavirus slowly disappearing, the level of political point scoring has gone up. And last week, Peter Dutton, he started attacking Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Premier of Queensland, for allowing Tom Hanks, the movie star, into Australia, even though it was actually Border Force that gave permission for Tom Hanks and his movie crew to come into Australia. And it just seems like every opportunity to score political points has been established here If it's not the Queensland Labor Party that's being attacked, it's the Victoria Labor Party that's being attacked under the leadership of Daniel Andrews. And and for me, it seems like the federal Liberal Party, it behaves more like a central hub that intervenes in state affairs and it's like a central campaigning unit. Or they took on this sort of approach during the Victoria election in 2018, where pretty much for most of the year, they pushed the idea of African gangs causing havoc on the streets of Melbourne. They were quite vocal about the threat of terrorism. Now they're getting involved in the Queensland election in a similar way. And it's not just people like Peter Dutton, it's also Scott Morrison. So prime ministers usually do have a constructive and positive role to play in state election campaigns. That's always been the case historically. They usually play a role which stays out of the day-to-day political fights. They're above the political fray, but their involvement is at a level where it's as if they're the ones that are actually running for election and not their state counterparts. There's this belief that Scott Morrison is popular. I don't think he's popular. I don't think he has that following that, say, John Howard had. John Howard was loved by some of his supporters. The left tend to forget this, that as much as the left really hated John Howard, and for good reason, and I don't think he would mind me saying that, His supporters saw him as one of them, saw him as having their best interests in heart, saw him as being a decent man. I've heard him described as the greatest prime minister Australia's ever had, not by any political scientist, not even by right-leading ones, but by ordinary voters. I've heard him described as one of the best people to ever run this country, and this is just from talking through people. We could argue that for the rest of this podcast and into the next one. And this was happening too while Mr. Howard was uh, Prime Minister. You don't get that with Scott Morrison. The most praise I've heard is, uh, no one would want that job at this time, would you? Which isn't exactly a rigging endorsement. I'm sure there are probably Liberal Party members who think very highly of him. I haven't met any, so I'm not saying that that, that they don't exist. I just haven't met them. And, of course, we'd love to hear from anyone out there who genuinely thinks this. There was that radio commentator who told Gretel Colleen that Scott Morrison was the greatest prime minister we'd ever had, and her disdain was palpable. The TV host, whatever show it was, was palpable. I think it was The Project. And also it went viral in terms of, look at what this person has said, can you believe it? Not, you know, finally some support for the Prime Minister. Scott Morrison, I think he's confused being able to manipulate a bit of press with being popular. Well, it doesn't really matter who the Prime Minister is. You want them to be an effective Prime Minister and you want them to get on with the job in the best way possible. Now, of course, there are 
extenuating circumstances at the moment with the pandemic that's not just affecting Australia, but it's affecting the entire world. I guess it is that question about how do prime ministers and how do federal politicians become involved in state campaigns. And we started off this segment by talking about how the media was getting involved in this whole process of opening up the borders, how federal politicians are being involved in this process of behaving politically and attacking their state counterparts. This whole process started off with that motto that we're all in this together. And that's been thrown out the window. We're not in all of this together. So, yeah, it is that question about, well, Obviously, there's corporate media, there's corporate media interests such as Seven, Nine and News Corporation. They'll pretty much support whatever this government puts out there and whatever agenda this government has actually got. But I'm more worried about why the ABC is actually supporting this agenda as well, when there are so many other perspectives out there. I think part of it is that the media landscape here is so um, homogenous that the ABC is caught up in being driven by the agenda set by the rest of the private media. Conspiratorially, we can look at the number of ex-News Corp uh, executives who are now in the ABC uh, and ex-Packer too. Uh, Ida Buttrose is the chair probably being the most obvious. Now, I will be fair, Ida Buttrose is a woman of substance and a woman of great experience and, and to be really fair, not a strange choice, shall we say, for chair of the ABC. Whether she, we've agreed with how she's run it or not, another thing. But if you look at her CV, you can see why she might have been appointed. Even down to, I would imagine, a Labor government might have seriously considered her as well. Um, whether they'd give it to her or not is another thing, but she is a fairly substantial figure. But there are other positions that RX News Corp. Now, again... To be fair, the ABC is a huge organisation and the type of experience you'd need would either have to come internally and if you were going externally, it's really only News Corp that matches in terms of the breadth and the experience you'd need. But it's not a good look. It doesn't smell right. It fails the pub test when you look at it in, a, in the way of the ABC following that agenda. ABC News does need a, a restructure and I'm not quite sure how you do it because a lot of journalists in the country have worked for News Corp just because it's you know the second biggest employer of journalists looking at it from the outside I can see some of the logic but I also I don't like some of the results you're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, recycle political stories that end up being too good to be true. My chunks are me. You're a shark and I'm swimming. My heart's still thumbs as I bleed. Triangles are my favorite shape. Me points, but two lines meet. Toe to toe, back to back. Let's go, my love. We all agree that recycling is a good idea, but the federal government has a different take on what recycling is all about. It keeps re-announcing old ideas and in some cases it's just a repeat of the same old story. A few weeks ago, the government announced coronavirus vaccines would be available to all Australians, even though a vaccine hasn't actually been developed and is unlikely to be developed for some time. But 
for me, that's not really the issue here. They announced exactly the same story from a few months ago, but the media cycle went in through the same process as before. Misreporting a vaccine was due to arrive any minute now and creating a good news story for the government for a full week at a time when they were having trouble in the background. More recently, we've had a third announcement of a gas-led recovery, even though it was virtually the same story that had been released over the past 12 months. Nothing new was really added to the story, but it enabled the government to push forward this idea that it's working towards an agenda when it clearly doesn't have one. A government that keeps recycling old news and brushing it up as something new is a government that doesn't really have much of an agenda, and it's a government that doesn't really seem to know what it's doing. The underlying philosophy comes from Ayn Rand. Some of the other neoliberalists refine it a bit. Ayn Rand's fairly crude. But the whole thing is is the removal of government because government regulates wages, it regulates taxes. One of the slogans is tax is theft, which was kind of a response to the Marxist notion of property being theft. We have now a group of unfit people who've been who've been put into office and been pre-selected seats because they can't do anything because they're not capable of it don't want to do anything because they're not motivated to do it and it suits that group of neoliberals to have them in there because as we're seeing the system is fragile and now the system's falling down scott morrison i think couldn't really tell you and in fact in the evidence we've seen he doesn't really understand foreign affairs I don't think he could tell you where Austria was on a map. He was in that telecall the other day with other world leaders. I doubt he could find those places on a map. Now, he's probably heard of them. That's okay. Prime ministers generally have a decent idea of what's going on in every country that we deal with directly anyway. And in any case, countries that we may have to deal with. Something like Indonesian internal politics is something that a prime minister would probably spend a good few hours a week on, knowing what's happening, who's voting, what's legislation being passed, what new policies being announced, just because it's within Australia's interest to know this. Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, America, England, Europe, China, on it goes. And there's all these other countries that the everyday Australian may not realise that we deal with, but we do deal with. I don't think Scott Morrison has any interest and doesn't have the capacity to understand it anyway. You have people like Craig Kelly. When you look at Craig Kelly's CV, when you look at his background, when you look at how he talks, you wonder why he's anywhere near politics at all. James Patterson, he's not a particularly brilliant child prodigy. He's not even a child prodigy. He's a young spoiled brat with no concept of anything outside his own narrow little world. Shouldn't be anywhere near politics. On and on and on and on and on it goes. This is the Liberal Party. We'll be talking about the National Party later. (laughs) You, You mentioned Ayn Rand before. Now, I haven't read The Fountainhead for a long, long time. Do you think that this is restricted just to uh, right-wing politics or right-wing political parties, this idea of the lack of an agenda or recycling old news to make it look like you've got an agenda? And I was thinking about the New South Wales Labor Party, maybe between 2003 and maybe 2011 when they were booted out. Every two years, they'd announce a new plan for a metro line or a new rail system going out to Rouse Hill. And 
These plans never actually eventuated until there was a change of government, but it was a tactic that was used to make it seem like there was an agenda when there actually wasn't. Now, of course, they did many other things while they were in government for, for those 16 years, but just focusing on that rail plan... Bob Carr made an announcement, Morris Yemmer made the announcement, Nathan Rees made an announcement, Christina Keneally also announced that she was going to develop this new rail system. None of these plans ever came to fruition, but at least in those cases, we had different faces. Each premier that came into New South Wales at that time, there were different faces giving the news. But with this current federal government, it's the same people recycling the same news over and over again. And it's quite brazen. I, I did check out those news reports about the vaccine and also the gas-led recovery. It is the same faces and it's virtually the same news releases put out. In some cases, it's verbatim. Mm. And you're right. All governments do it, particularly if there's bad news coming or towards the end of their useful life. All governments have a lifespan. You know, we can argue when should have, say, John Howard have lost. He loses in 2007. Should he have done that last term in retrospect? I, I know that on the left they'll be saying, no, he should have lost in 1997. We should have called another election then. <laughs> but, you know, being fair, you know, Hawke and Keating probably went a term over. Keating scrapes in that last term and maybe the swap should have happened earlier as, as, uh, as Keating argued. Rudd and Gillard weren't in long enough to know well, power isn't an aphrodisiac as, as well. So prime ministers always are thrown out of office or they're taken out in a coffin. There's very, very few prime ministers that have actually resigned from office. I think only Menzies. He resigns on Australia Day 1966. But even then, he was under pressure and I think he jumped before he was pushed. Before then, uh, they either lose, lose the election and step down or... They get technically they lose the confidence of the House of Representatives. Yeah, either through election or through the votes, or really through the party knifing them out. Uh, I think it was Enoch Powell who said all political careers end in failure. I wouldn't agree very much with Enoch Powell, but that's something I think is <laughs> an arguable an arguable claim that is very hard to reject from at least a superficial thinking. And I can't think of many examples where they haven't ended in failure, even if the even if the career has been a success. So this sort of process depends on the collective amnesia of both the public and the and the media as well. But it's getting to the point where someone like Scott Morris, and he's been there for over two years in the position of Prime Minister, he's been in public life for 13 years if you look at when he entered Parliament, but he's still he's still difficult to define in a political sense. And even though he's highly ideological and hangs on to power for power's sake, and he's quite abusive as well, I'm just wondering which other Prime Minister could we compare Scott Morrison to? Is there any any other prime minister out there similar to Scott Morrison? Billy McMahon. <laughs> Nobody's quite sure how he got the job. He didn't do the job very well. Billy McMahon was probably the closest we'd had to a mediocrity before uh, Scott Morrison. And he was even even had some points of interest about him. In terms of the endless announcements... All governments re-announce things, particularly on large and complex projects where, you know, a contractor has to pull out or 
often it's stuff you don't hear about that they decide to build a road, say, and they announce the road and then you realize that the road can't be built there for many reasons. So they keep announcing it. And of course, the, the famous one is Badgerys Creek Airport. How many times has that been announced? Although I think it's now actually starting to go ahead. Although I, I'm not sure that you or I will be able to fly out of it. I think we'll be long dead. Well, more than likely, the second Sydney airport, that's been in plans and those announcements have been made since 1947. So, you know, 73 years on, there's still a little bit of time to go. But I'm thinking of going back further in time and not many people around can remember this Prime Minister, but I'm thinking more about Billy Hughes. Now, he was the Labor Prime Minister many, many years ago. He, he resigned. He, was, he resigned from the Labor Party, became a turncoat, set up the uh, Nationalist Party, then en- ultimately ended up joining the Liberal Party as well. He was a big troublemaker at that time. He was very abusive as well. Except Hughes had talent. You know, Hughes came from nowhere. He was an umbrella maker. He was born in Wales. He was self-educated. One of the reasons that Hughes was promoted over people who were probably even more, definitely more capable and more trustworthy, like Andrew Fisher, at least initially, was because Hughes could quote Latin at the other side. And this impressed a lot of people. Uh, he was a very intelligent man. He was a Labour rat and he was, you, you couldn't trust him as far as you could kick him. So I don't want to sort of restructure him as a, as a hero. He certainly had talents and abilities far beyond Scott Morrison's. He is one of the breakout stars at the 1919 Versailles peace talks. Now, what he does is uh, force Germany into huge reparations, arguing that Australia had lost a greater proportion of troops than other nations. The famous quote, Mr. Clemenceau, I speak for 60,000 dead. Yeah, I'm not defending Hughes as a prime minister as such, but when we look at these figures, we've got to look what were their strengths. Hughes, to compare him to Morrison, he was able to play the nationalist card. He was Billy Hughes, the little digger. He turned up to every Anzac Day. He was not trustworthy at all. The Labour Party, I think, were in one sense very pleased to see him go. When he was a nationalist prime minister and the nationalist party was one of the precursors to the Liberal Party, his treasurer, Stanley Melbourne Bruce, tried to force him to actually set an agenda for cabinet meetings to distribute notes. Hughes wouldn't do this. When he was forced to take an agenda, he'd just sort of run through and talk about the things that interested him. Yeah, Hughes was able to get the love of his followers in a way that Scott Morrison just can't. And he was able to be Prime Minister for seven years, which Scott Morrison may well be able to do. We won't know that till seven years has passed, although there's forever rumblings about Morrison being dumped somehow, despite Liberal Party rules preventing this. Well, those rules can always be changed, of course. In the days of Billy Hughes, it was the League of Nations and he was rattling against Germany. I I can easily imagine Scott Morrison appearing at the United Nations and throwing his weight and abusing China. He actually already did that from the podium in Australia. But there's also been some other rumblings that Morrison seems to be a weekend prime minister as well. 
And this came up last week where there was an interview with Scott Morrison between David Spears and Scott Morrison on The Insiders on Sunday morning. But the interview was recorded two days before the episode on the Friday. Now, I have seen quite a few pre-recorded interviews where it's actually a couple of hours before a particular news program goes to air on the same day. But I've not actually seen that happen before in a current affairs program of this nature that a pre-recorded interview occurs two days before that episode. I'm guessing the argument for not working Sunday morning is that he goes to church. Okay, that's fine. But when you look at Daniel Andrews, who has appeared, I think it must be closing 90 or 100 days, every day to the press, I don't think really anybody would begrudge any Prime Minister going to church or not going to church. You know, Australia has had quite a few atheist Prime Ministers. Curtin, Hawke, Gillard had quite a few devout Christian prime ministers, Menzies, Kevin Rudd. You had your nominal Catholics. You've had your agnostics. It's not the personal belief. Whatever the prime minister's belief or faith structure was, very few of them avoided working on weekends constantly in the way that uh, Scott Morrison seems to. People who watch this stuff more closely than I do anyway noticed that he's never given a weekend press conference. Very good at dropping stuff at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon that's particularly bad news. It certainly seems a pre-recorded interview is an odd thing, particularly as he has done radio live. I've heard him on FM radio and I've heard him on AM radio live, but only during work hours or, you know, eight o'clock. It's quite odd. Prime Minister is a seven day a week job. Well, I guess it's not the be all and end all, but it is quite an unusual process that he went through there. Just in some other news in politics, there's been quite a lot of chaos in the New South Wales National Party. The leader, John Barillaro, he's on personal leave after threatening to dismantle the New South Wales Coalition over the Koala Protection legislation. There was another Nationals MP that resigned last week, Leslie Williams. She resigned from the Nationals and has put in an application to join the Liberal Party. The National Party still attracts votes in federal and state elections. That's across the country. And, of course, they don't run candidates in every single seat. But the organisation is moribund, and it seems to attract the wrong kind of person if we're looking at someone like Barnaby Joyce in northern New South Wales. But what kind of future is there for the National Party? They're starting to get more competition for votes from the Shooters, Fishers, Farmers Party from One Nation And in some areas of Wagga and the northern tablelands of New South Wales, they're getting competition for their votes from regional Greens as well. I mean, the National Party has always been a party of rotters, of spivs, of con artists, of failed farmers, except every now and then you get some really substantial figures. Tim Fisher, John McEwen, Earl Page at a state level, you had some fairly significant figures. Rob Oakshot wrote a really intriguing article that was true about National Party power structures in the country. And he said the whole thing about the koalas isn't about koalas, it's about developers. 
And it's absolutely true that the National Party hasn't really defended farmers in any substantial way for at least 60 years at a state level. Uh, Wal Murray was probably the last National Party leader who pretended to do things for farmers and I think changed a couple of market regulations or something fairly minor. Raymond Chandler said about the police, it requires the absolute best of people and there's nothing in it for the best of people. I think it's the same with National Party representation. It requires the absolute best of people and there's nothing in it for them. The good ones get dragged out and are replaced by your Barnaby Joyce's, your George Christensen's. Don't forget these guys were absolute failures before they were politicians. Politics was really a last resort for them. But with the right amount of networking and getting into the right seat, they were able to leverage themselves into positions of power and influence, despite not having any ability, any motivation, nor any thought of what's best for the country. They're only really an electoral force in two states. They only get about 5 to 6% of the vote. But they know where that 5 to 6 of the percent of the vote can be found, and that's the seats they run in. I'm not inclined to write them off. The next New South Wales state election, that's not for another two and a half years. So there's still a long way to go. Whatever's happening right now will be forgotten about. There's a federal election due before 2022. So I'm pretty sure that whatever's happening now on the ground in New South Wales and the New South Wales National Party is probably not going to influence whatever happens in, in federal politics. But it's just that, you know, this sort of mayhem within a coalition partner, well, of course, that's going to affect the, the Liberal Party. It's also going to affect the performance of the New South Wales government as well. So it will be interesting to see how this affects the, the vote in the future. The, the ignorance of Barilaro was was astounding in that he thought he could remove his confidence from the, the Premier but retain the seats in Cabinet. It is so mind-bogglingly stupid that he would think that. It's one of the basic uh, tenets of the Westminster system. The support in Cabinet, you know, if you're in Cabinet, you support the Prime Minister or the government, really. You support the government. If you cannot support the government on a matter of conscience or, or what have you, you step down from Cabinet. You know, and I think in the end, even the Liberal Party, although it was working to their advantage, were able to say to them, this isn't how the convention works. I mean, the Liberal Party is not terribly interested in convention when, when it doesn't suit them. So this obviously suited them. But I don't think Barilaro understood that that basic um, cabinet solidarity was a thing. And I, I honestly think he thought he could not vote for the government while being part of the management structure of it. This is not a, a very smart or a very canny or a very capable person. He tried to go for the seat of Eden Monero and shot himself in the foot before he even got close to being considered, I think. I don't think he's got a future as leader of the National Party. And I'm wondering if they're trying to get him out of the seat and force a by-election um, because you wouldn't want him on the backbench either. He's not going to be trustworthy on the backbench. Now, there's been some more evidence of corruption in federal politics as well. The federal government, they paid $30 million to the Leppington Pastoral Company for 12 hectares of land. Now, I'd never heard of the Leppington Pastoral Company before, but the National Audits Office decided to 
have a look at this deal and they've estimated that the land that was purchased is only worth $3.1 million. That's and the federal government paid 10 times over that amount. And we've also found out that the Leppington Pastoral Company, it's a donor to the Liberal Party. It's donated $58,000 in recent years and $127,000 over the past 15 years. The land was acquired for the Western Sydney Airport Corporation, but it won't be required until way after the year 2050. In 2018, Scott Morrison announced that his government would create a national corruption commission, but two years later, we're, we're still waiting for this, and perhaps Morrison was thinking more about a commission that promotes corruption instead of a commission that investigates corruption, but... There's just more and more corruption that's going on at a federal level. And we, we actually did publish an article on corruption on the New Politics website earlier this year. We've already had to update the article throughout the year, and it looks like we'll be busy updating that article over the weekend with this new information about the Leppington Pastoral Company. Land that was probably initially envisaged as farming land, say, or maybe later industrial, you know, light industrial or even residential land, suddenly is zoned for an airport and it's $3 million worth and you might negotiate an extra one or two or even maybe double the amount uh, because the utility of the land is suddenly much greater than what we originally thought it was. You might argue that. I don't think you can, but 10 times the amount is just utter ridiculous. There's no utility in that. What really strikes me is the blatant corruption. There's no attempt to hide it. There's no attempt to play it down. It's not the brown paper bags of Bob Askin and Joe Bjorki Peterson, you know, where it was an open secret, but it wasn't till the Royal Commissions into both that we realized just how pervasive it was. It was, was kept very, very quiet because they knew that at, at all levels, this was wrong. I don't think the current members of the government know what wrong is. I think there is such a failure of understanding of how democracy and how the Australian political system is supposed to work. I, don't, I think you'd find that they'd be saying, but of course, they donated money to us. We had to show our good faith and, and make sure that they were well, they were thanked for donating money to us. <laughs> I'm almost certain that there are at least some people who know that this is wrong. Tony Abbott, you know, when he was given a whole wad of cash, said this publicly. He said he went to one of the old liberal grandees who said, put it through the party, Tony, then it's, then it's not corrupt anymore. The implication being perhaps that he got it back in other ways, but it was then on the books. Well, there's also that issue of ministerial responsibility as well. So the minister responsible in this case, Paul Fletcher, he's just said that he didn't know anything about this deal at all. And and he did allude to this idea that perhaps it was paid well over uh, above market value so that there wouldn't be any legal action to, to this process. Now, if I owned property worth $3.1 million and I was offered $30 million to just take the money and not proceed with any legal action, well, of course I'd probably do that. And I'd probably take the legal action on top of that as well. But that's what their uh, reasoning was, that we paid all this money so that we wouldn't, wouldn't get any legal action in the future. But that's quite a flimsy excuse. And it's also this land is not going to be used for another 30 years. The Leppington Pastoral Company, it is leasing back that land for a certain period of time. It's a dud deal. As I said, you, you might be able to argue a little bit more than its market value, given its you know potential utility. 
you wonder, you know, if slightly sharper business people just line up to do deals because it's not how smart business people work, overpaying 10 times the amount. And, and again, it, it goes back to my early point of people of no ability and no talent, no interest being put into the seats so that others can run amok without any without any fear of institutional backlash. It's just insane. And speaking of corruption, although this is more about ineptitude and mismanagement, but possibly it's a combination of all of the above, but the the federal government has announced a $3.5 billion upgrade to the national broadband network, the infamous NBN. And, you know, even though their current and inadequate NBN hasn't been completed, now I'm still trying to work this out, whether it's a smoke screen for other, other bad news that they've got coming up, but... It's the idea is to upgrade the NBN to a full fibre network, and I really had to laugh when I saw this this announcement. The Liberal Party was constantly told for the past seven years since 2013 that their hybrid system was a waste of time and a waste of money. It's cost 51 billion dollars. There have been lost revenues. It's ineffective and it's slow, and it's currently number 66 in the world for broadband speed. So. Sure, upgrade it to full fibre as soon as possible, but why didn't they do this back in 2013? <laughs> so I laugh because you and I both know the frustrations of trying to set a podcast up some days, Eddie. We know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> often we're not cranky at what we're talking about. We're cranky because it's taken us half an hour to do this very simple <laughs> Malcolm Farr, the journalist, who actually I have a lot of time for. I know we slam mainstream journalists here a lot, but you know, a, go a good journalist is a good journalist. I've never met Malcolm. He always seems to do a good job. Said one of the main roles of this government is uh, rectifying the mistakes of the Abbott government. Um, I think that's being rather too kind to this government. There's certainly you can certainly make that that argument. Certainly, a lot of the motivation behind the NBN was making sure that Rupert Murdoch wouldn't lose any more subscribers to Foxtel than he was already losing. I think the turnaround is interesting. Foxtel, based on the last figures I saw, is an unsustainable business model. So whether Murdoch is now seeing the faster internet speeds might help him. Well, I'm pretty sure that he gave the thumbs up from his pad in New York for fibre to the premises to go ahead. And it has been interesting to see that the way that the media has reported this announcement, because it's almost like you know, this is a great good news story. We're finally getting fibre to to the premises across the network. We don't actually know if that's going to be the case or not. The whole plan is uh, lacking in detail. We've just been given a figure of $3.5 billion. Now, in the context of $51 billion being spent on the network so far, I'd say that to go in and take all those new copper wires that they put in and to put in fibre in there instead, it's going to cost a lot more than $3.5 billion. They're guaranteeing this by 2023. I'd say it's going to take a lot longer to do this as well. But it's almost like the media has totally ignored the fact that the Liberal Party deny the need for, for the fibre optic network. They're looking at all these other reasons for why they've brought it in. 
And it looks like, yeah, they're going to completely overlook this fact that the Liberal Party was railing against the Labor plan for a long, long time and they've done a complete about-face. It won't happen. It, I suspect it might even be to cover the $30 million purchase of the land for the airport that really nobody wants. That Australia has the 66th best internet in the world is disgraceful. We should be... I don't know that we could ever get it as good as South Korea, say, which I think is number one, because South Korea is geographically much smaller. But we could be in the top 10 of speed. You know, we had a world-class phone network till they sold off Telstra. We had a world-class postal network. The geography here isn't an insurmountable challenge. I, I mean, I don't think anything's going to happen. I think they're just going to uh, announce, announce, announce. When the election campaign comes, they will keep announcing. They'll re-announce this. They'll be saying, oh, we announced it and we're going to announce it again and put it on to the never-never. Well, that would be a great campaign strategy. Look at our great announcements. Yeah, nobody announces better than we do. The thing is, they probably think that is a valid and, and useful um, approach. The, the history of technology under the coalition is very sad. Look at the census. Uh, we've been doing a census successfully for uh, you know 115 years. We now have a census that's invalid. Well, the NBN, if you look at Centrelink robo-debts, anything that requires any bit of technology is an absolute failure, except it seems for mining, where you know the technology is really efficient. There's two full-time workers at massive mines and things like that, or 12 full-time workers at, at massive mines. But if, it, if it's for the greater public good, they're not interested. That's it for this new politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech, or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.